Hello, and welcome to episode eight of Natasha Explains It All. Um, This is going to be part two of the who knows how many episode series on how criminal courts work. Um, We ended the last episode uh, really still at the beginning of the system and talking about um, the money bail system, which kicks in... uh, it, it kicks in at the very beginning of a case once someone has been arrested, um, and uh, it's uh, often the only way that someone can get out um, pre-trial uh, before their uh, before their case is heard. And um, before moving on to the next steps of the system, I want to just talk a little bit more about bail, money bail, um, because. While I think um, people are starting to understand more that, yeah, you know, if you have a money-based system, it's always going to favor people with more money. Even if you have people accused of the same crimes, the person who has the money gets out and therefore is in a much, much better position to ultimately defeat their case. They're in a much better position to be able to defend themselves rather than if they have to defend themselves from jail. But then there raises questions about like, well, what are the alternatives? Um, And uh, so I want to talk about that briefly. So the main arguments as to why money bail is needed is that uh, it, 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 it provides two things. One, it provides assurances that the person will show up for court because, you know, there's so much personal money on the line. And then also it helps, you know, protect the community. There's a public safety factor because, uh, you know, because if you have to put up money that will make it less likely for you will be less incentivized to commit crime while you're out on bail. Um, so those are the two, um, and I, I'm sure you can hear the skepticism in my voice because I'll unpack that a little bit. Um, so those are the two main reasons that are given as to why money bail needs to exist to incentivize people to show up to court and to reduce the risk of, uh, you know, more crimes being committed while the person is out. Um, and the reality is, is that both of these, um, both of these bases have been debunked. One, as to like people appearing for court, the reality is, is that the vast majority of people already show up to the vast majority of their court hearings. Why? Because most people understand that showing up for criminal court is important. And if you don't show up to a single criminal court hearing, you can pick up a new criminal offense. It's called an FTA or failure to appear. It is a separate criminal offense if you don't show up for a criminal court hearing. And if you don't show up, the judges have discretion. They they might, um, you know, they might ask the lawyers to try to um, contact you and reset um, your hearing date. But oftentimes they will issue what's called a bench warrant, which means they've issued a warrant for your arrest from the like literal bench where they sit. And you can be arrested just on that basis because you didn't show up for court. So that provides plenty of incentive um, for people to show up to court. And the reality is, is that 
when people don't show up to criminal court, it tends to be poverty-related issues. They lack transportation. Um, they have childcare and work obligations that they can't uh, they can't easily navigate while showing up for court because court is always during business hours. It's always Monday through Friday, you know, like eight to five kind of, or like eight to four kind of. They're not convenient times at all. And the reality as well is that if you've ever uh, and I hope you haven't, but if you've ever had the experience of having to go to criminal court, um, you know, courts will often like call cases all together. Like you, you're at the nine, 9 a.m. like docket call, but you could be sitting there for hours before your case is called. Um, and then I'll get into later about like what actually happens in the hearings. Um, but this is another area where like TV does such a disservice because most court hearings in the criminal court system are really short. Um, and so you could be waiting hours for um, your hearing, and then the hearing itself will last five minutes because the judge is just going to ask the parties, like, what's the status of what's going on? Like, maybe checking on you, how you're doing out on bail, um, waiting for the prosecutor to report anything you've been doing wrong, and then like setting the next date. Um, and so this is massively inconvenient for anyone, but particularly someone who's living in poverty, where having to show up for court may mean that they miss out on a day's wages, um, because they don't have paid time off, um, and had to skip a day of work to show up for court. And so, um, and also courts in general, um, as well as like any type of pretrial supervision office, which I may get into in this episode, or it might have to be another episode. Like they don't tend to send reminders to people. Um, you might have gotten the information about when your next court hearing is as you were leaving the jail as part of your like jail paperwork, or maybe you subsequently got some notice in the mail. Like, it, they don't make it easy. Um, and there's no reminders, even though there's such simple technology nowadays, you know, to send people text message reminders or get like an automated phone call. I mean, you get this from your dentist, you know, you get these kind of, you get these from UPS letting you know that a package is arriving. Like this technology is very simple and it's very ubiquitous in other areas of your life to remind you of appointments that you have. Um, but it's not common uh, in the criminal court system. It's not, it's not facilitated to make it easier for you to remember when your date is and for you to, to facilitate your ability to, to appear for this important obligation. And I guess people could argue that like, well, you should just remember because, you know, it's important. Like I said, the incentive is already built in because it can be its own separate criminal offense if you fail to show up for court. But what is the cost to just sending people a text message reminder or an automated phone call reminding them or an email or whatever? You can set up multiple forms of contact, right, that they have an upcoming court date. It would also help in alerting them if there's changes because sometimes court hearings are canceled and people are not, people are not informed of that. Even their lawyers may not find that out until they show up for court. And so this person may have missed a day of work or had to arrange for childcare last minute or whatever to show up. And then they're told that, you know, their, their case has been recalendered, meaning it's been moved to another date. 
And so now they have to scramble to, you know, take another day off of work or make more childcare arrangements or whatever the case may be. Um, and so, um, it's something we could do to, I mean, if, if the goal really is to encourage people to show up for all their court hearings, why wouldn't we do something like that to, um, to encourage people? Because there is data showing that, I mean, just like with anything that does incur, that does help people make their appointments. Reminders are helpful for all of us. Um, and then on this thing about like, will it, you know, money bail, will it reduce the likelihood of someone committing crimes on the outside while their case is pending because there's so much money on the line? Um, I haven't looked at data on this. Uh, my sense is, is that that's just not true because people are already incentivized to not uh, engage in further criminal activity because they have an open criminal matter. And if you are, if you pick up a new case, like if you're arrested again uh, while you're out on bail, your bail in the first case can be revoked. Um, um, which again is like, I mean, it's just, the incentive is already there. It's not the money. It's the fact that you can be incarcerated again, right? It's not the fact that I would have to forfeit this money. It's the fact that I could be incarcerated again. Like that is the, that is a more of an incentive, but also again, it just skews in favor of people who have a lot of resources. Um, and they are the people, you know, that as we've seen with a lot of high profile cases recently related to January 6th and other things like they are people with more resources are going to be in a greater position to, uh, engage in witness tampering, um, and, uh, and other things, um, while being out, um, and so the the idea that you need money to dissuade people from committing additional or engaging or you know getting arrested while they're out um is not a convincing argument um people are already incentivized to you know try to avoid police contact because they already have an open criminal matter and they can be reincarcerated for any new arrest or any new criminal involvement. And, you know, there are any time that there is efforts to reform bail, any time there are efforts to not use money bail and use uh, something else, uh, either a risk assessment type system or just have no bail policies that like, you know, if, if the allegations are related to misdemeanors, you know, you get automatic um, no money bail and you get released on your own recognizance, which means you're released, but without any type of, um, you know, financial penalty associated with that. The, the major opponents of reforms uh, are always the bail bond industry and because they have the most money at stake. 
they don't want to see their end industry go under, but the entire existence of their industry is based on the incarceration of people, the exploitation of people, um, the um, extortion of having people pay for their freedom. And so that happened in California, for example, there was a California ballot measure a few years ago to entirely replace money bail throughout the state with some some form of risk assessment. And it was ultimately defeated. And I think there are, you know, there are legitimate concerns about risk assessments because they do tend to perpetuate the same type of racial and socioeconomic disparities that money bail um, results in. So there definitely are legitimate concerns about that alternative. Um, But the reality is, is that the major backer of the opposition to ending money bail in California was the bail bond industry. And we have seen similar things happen across the country. Um, we're seeing that happen right now in the state of Illinois, that Illinois had passed um, reforms to end money bail throughout the state. But now those reforms are being put on hold. Um, they're not being implemented as of now because of pushback from groups like the private bail bond industry, who, again, profits off of people being uh, detained with a dollar amount over their head, and also right-wing groups, these uh, misnomered law and order groups that fear-monger and uh, lie about um, how money bail works. And again, the reality at the end of the day is anytime you have a system where, where freedom is contingent on how much money you have, you are going to favor people who have more money. And that contributes to why there is, why there are um, at least two systems of justice for those who are rich and those who are not rich. Um, And so there are alternatives and there are places like Washington, D.C. that haven't used a money bail system in decades. And I believe D.C. is is not the only place in the country. Um, And I apologize, I don't have the other example off the top of my head. There are other places in the country that just don't use money bail. And again, that in and of itself, what's also important to point out is that that in and of itself like doesn't eliminate the issues, um, uh, particularly the racial disparities in the criminal court system. Because if you take a look at a place like D.C. that doesn't have a money bail system, the racial disparities in D.C. are some of the worst uh, in the entire country, um, in both the juvenile and the adult systems in D.C. Black and brown residents of D.C., particularly black residents of D.C., are disproportionately targeted and disproportionately likely to be held pre-trial. Um, and so the elimination of money bail didn't solve uh, the racial discrimination there because it doesn't solve the issue of the initial arrest in the first place, right? And police profiling and um, <clears throat> and um, targeting of, um, of Black people and Black neighborhoods in D.C., um, and I know, again, we started this series really talking about the moment of arrest. I haven't, I haven't really delved into like the pre-arrest section. 
Um, but just understanding that getting ready, getting rid of money bail is an important step in um, the fight to uh, to make the criminal court system even remotely a just system. But it is not enough. But it also points to a major theme that I hope to bring out in this series, which is that um, the criminal court system is a money-making system. That it is, that is, if not its principal purpose, it is one of its major purposes. And I know that sounds cynical, and I know that a lot of people will feel like, well, no, like, I mean, the pr- primary purpose of the criminal court system is to... Uh, you know, is to protect public safety, safety, it's to hold people accountable for committing crimes. Um, And I want to challenge that perspective, because that's not actually what it does. The main one of the main purposes is to make money. um, And relatedly, to control, quote, unquote, undesirable populations, whether that be poor people, black people, brown people, disabled people, homeless people. Um, It is a uh, it is an institution that is designed for social control um, and to hide, quote unquote, undesirable populations uh, by locking them away. Um, and uh, perhaps we can get into this in another episode. We're seeing huge trends of that right now related to homelessness because homelessness has exploded massively in the United States in the last several years, particularly post-pandemic. And many, many jurisdictions across the country rather than like actually housing people and addressing the underlying causes by doing things like raising the minimum wage, by building affordable housing and housing projects and expanding mental health services and creating safe injection sites and lots of other like very well-established ways of reducing um, the likelihood that someone would end up homeless. Instead, the major responses have been to criminalize homeless, making it more likely that people who are living on the streets are going to end up in jail. And so then they're out of view, you know, for the people who are bothered by, you know, having to see homeless people on the street. Um, Again, that's like a perfect example of how the criminal court system uh, is designed to, quote unquote, disappear social problems, not actually solve them, uh, but to disappear people um, and to control socially undesirable people, you know, in, in quotes, um, and to make as much money as possible along the way. And I will get into that more um, with each episode. So um, that is uh, um, more than a few minutes <laughs> um, on the issue of money bail. Um, and I will start, um, I'll start a little bit, but we'll get into the next episode of what happens, um, what happens next for, we're, we're going to diverge, you know, now, because at this point we have people who can't afford bail and, um, are now stuck in jail, uh, until some future point. We have people who have been released and are out um, on bail pending their cases. And so we've got two tracks, and those two tracks lead to very different outcomes. And then um, to complicate matters, we also have a 
third track that overlaps with those two tracks, which are the diversion uh, cases. And what do I mean by that? In some places, prosecutors' offices, district attorneys' offices will offer people um, a diversionary path, meaning normally like if you sign this agreement and do, you know, normally anywhere from six months to a year of some type of course, treatment, drug testing, and or all of the above, um, we will dismiss your charges and you won't actually have a formal case. There are many types of diversion programs. Some of them actually do require you to plea first. And then if you complete the requirements, then you then your plea will be withdrawn. Um, and then there's others that allow you to do the kind of diversion path before you enter a plea. Um, but on this theme of this of this episode in this theory uh, on this series about the importance of money unfortunately oftentimes these diversionary programs um have money associated with them as well you have to pay for them so let's say it's like a a, a dui uh charge and the prosecutor and it's like a first time dui and the prosecutor has some type of diversion program for it. And so it's like, all right, well, if you do, I don't know, six months or a year of drug testing or like, you know, uh, breathalyzers and you go to AA meetings and you do this like alcohol responsibility course, if you do all of the, and you have community service, you have all these requirements that by the way, are not this, this particular, if it's through like the district attorney's office or the prosecutor's office, like the court might not have any involvement at all. Anyway, so if you do all these things that we're telling you to do, like we won't actually file charges um, and this won't go on your record. Uh, but there's money associated with that. There's cost associated with that. There could be just program fees straight up, which could be very expensive, could be thousands of dollars. Uh, you're likely to have to pay for those breathalyzer tests um, or the drug tests. You know, they might like require you to put like an interlock device um, in your vehicle that you have to like blow into before you drive and you have to pay for that. Um, and so as a result, again, this is another financial barrier in the system. If you don't have the money to pay for diversion, you can't have your case diverted and you're going to have to go to regular court. Um, and again, I, I'm not saying this is to like, oh, well, you know, well, this, this sounds like important, like you should be taking DUI seriously. That's not the point at all. If you were taking DUI seriously, you wouldn't be offering programs only to people who could afford them, right? If the matter was really about public safety and about like helping people change their behavior and addressing whatever issues may have caused them to have contact with the system, you wouldn't base it on whether someone has money or not. You would make it as accessible as possible because you want people to get help. You want people to change. You want people to be to have the tools that they need to be able to be accountable um, and to not have disparate outcomes uh, simply based on whether the person has money or not. It's not fair that someone who has money can pay the several thousand dollars to divert their case and never actually uh, 
uh, have a criminal record and someone who doesn't have that money is now going to have a criminal record for the exact same offense, for the exact same charges. So that is, um, again, the diversion, like the diversion issue um, and diversionary programs could be its own series because, as I said, there's ones that are like this that's like even before you get to court. Um, and it's basically like do all these requirements for a certain amount of time and then the prosecutor won't file charges and like your case goes away. There are other diversions where actually, you know, charges are filed. There is an open criminal case against you and you may need to plea to whatever the plea agreement is. And I'll get into pleas in another episode. So don't worry. Um, and then only if then you complete whatever requirements, whatever classes, whatever uh, uh, testing you have to do, whatever counseling you have to do, plus all of the above, you might be on like electronic monitoring or other things for a while, and you complete all those things successfully, then they will withdraw your plea and you will not have been you know, convicted of that, um, of that offense. But anyway... So in addition to the money bail question, so that first question, once you are arrested and uh, are like your first opportunity to be free, um, again, often is contingent on how much money you have. Then another layer after that is if you are offered uh, a diversion program, depending on your charges and what the local policies are, oftentimes that's also tied to money. And so you might stay in jail because you don't have the money to post bail. And even if you had the money to post bail, you might uh, not be, you might not be able to um, take advantage of a diversion, uh, of a diversionary track because you don't have the money either. So I feel like that's a lot Let's pause there. Um, what I'm going to pick up with next time is um, I'm going to pick up next time with um, pretrial release programs because oftentimes, even if you posted bail um, or even if you were released on your own recognizance, meaning like the judge didn't uh, require you to post any type of money bail to get out. Oftentimes, very frequently, you will have to uh, do many conditions related to being released. It could be curfews, um, drug testing, electronic monitoring, which means those like bulky ankle monitors, uh, and many other things. And you often have to pay for that stuff as well and can go back to jail if you don't pay. So not because you committed a new offense, um, but because... Um, you didn't have the money um, to come up with this stuff. So anyway, for next time, I'm going to delve into, um, uh, we'll delve into the pretrial supervision world. And then in a later episode, we'll get to plea bargaining and all of that. So yeah, that's enough for now. Um, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.